1: If you could find out the day you're going to die, would you?
2: Uh, Probably not. The only reason I would is like if I had to cancel a subscription. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I go, wait a second. The bill came on Wednesday. I was already dead Tuesday. So I'm not paying for that. Because I'd want to take care of that up front and make less of a burden for my family.
3: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we are bringing you an episode that was recorded the day before Election Day. So uh, we are speaking to you from the past, and we hope that everything is warm and fuzzy and perfect uh, in the future. Um, and if it's not, we hope that this is a, a fantastic distraction for you. Uh, today's episode is going to welcome there's Johnny Starr and all-around staff favorite Paul Reiser, who will answer the AV Club's 11 questions. But first, I am joined by our video producer and host, Cameron Sheets, to discuss one of his favorite award show moments, which we'll get to in just a moment. Welcome, Cam.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: Of course, I'm glad you were able to stop by. Now, um, (laughs) Push the Envelope subscribers will recall Cameron's interview with Gugu Mbatha-Raw, and if you haven't listened to that, you definitely should. But today, you're here to talk about someone else. Uh, It's Hugh Jackman, and specifically his opening number at the 2009 Oscars. You know, when when you heard that we were going to start... Looking at past award show moments, what made this the clear choice for you that you wanted to come on here and, and talk about?
0: I mean, simply put, it's my favorite thing I've seen at the Oscars in my lifetime, I think. Uh, I <laughs> I just think it's hysterical and so well-made and such a great showcase for Hugh Jackman's many, many talents. But yeah, this is one that has always just been a favorite of mine. We actually did an A-V-Q&A a few years back where we're like, what's your favorite Oscar moment? Stumped for it then. Years later, still stumping for it. And I think, as you mentioned, like, this week of all weeks, this feels like a nice distraction. And I mean, <laughs> on past episodes of Push the Envelope, we've we've talked about some of our favorite Oscar moments. And <laughs> I had to laugh because I was thinking, okay, we have the train wreck of 1989. We have the explosion of excrement that was David Letterman's 1995 hosting job. I was like, let's talk about something that we just fully unironically enjoyed. <laughs> and so the opening number from 2009 felt like the perfect thing to talk about.
3: I mean, I have to say it's, uh, and for reasons that we'll get into uh, it a little bit, uh, <laughs> it's actually very apropos. You know, Billy Crystal was always known for doing Little Song and Dance mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And it seems like it would be a fool's errand to try and do that if you're not Billy Crystal. And Hugh Jackman just came in there and was the ultimate showman and and really, really blew it out of the park, I think, to, to scene set a little bit. This uh, two thousand nine Oscars was, dur- and of course, it's a little, you know, crazy to think how dramatic it was then. And it was, it was, it was a dramatic economic uh, recession that we were in. Um, but the, the recession was a big concern mm-hmm. at those Oscars. You know, they they were worried about coming off across as you know this elite class of people that was able to you know put on these ball gowns and go to this fancy award show when other people were you know losing losing their jobs and not able to to pay their bills and so that was that was a major concern right. going into here and I think they found they found the perfect solution with Hugh Jackman and with the way that he kind of opened up the show.
0: Well, and I think the the recession just ties so specifically into the other big conversation going into the this year's Oscars that you know, we had The Dark Knight, one of the biggest movies ever, such a such a phenomenon with mass audiences, was not nominated for best picture and this was this was the last show we had where the field was so small. We only had the five nominees. Well, you know, in in recent history, where we only had the five nominees. So it was kind of this thing going into it it was like, I mean, are the general public going to care if we're nominating? Well, we'll rag on it more later, but not to get too far ahead of ourselves, The Reader or Frost Nixon. (laughs) Um, You know, it just felt like this was such a moment. And obviously, the, The Dark Knight, it's not like it was just not seen by the Academy. Of course, they nominated Heath Ledger and he would go on to win. But I think that that's kind of part of this conversation too, that they kind of made this the perfect moment. And I think kind of addressing that fact, the Academy, you know, this is kind of the conversation every year now, but it felt like they were already very aware that year after year, viewership was dropping. And and maybe that's, you know, obviously, that's just a trend that kind of is across the board with live TV events, with award shows, that sort of thing. But they noticed it, and they wanted to try something different. And that's part of the big reason, obviously, that Hugh Jackman was brought in. But Hugh Jackman, I think, specifically was probably brought in because of the show's producers who were uh, known writer, director Bill Condon and Lawrence Mark. Now, of course, Bill Condon, uh, I would say a fantastic director. He's been a behind a lot of favorites of mine. I mean, I think the two of them most recently had done Dreamgirls, and it kind of feels like they got the gig off of that. And, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are, but it seems to me that they kind of wanted to bring some of that old-school musical sensibility to the show, which obviously, by getting... Hugh Jackman for the gig, they were certainly kind of playing off of his history with the Tony Awards and being able to put on a show there, which, as I admitted to you, I was not as familiar with his history hosting the Tonys. So I I kind of wonder what your thoughts on with them pulling in Hugh for this from the Tonys, essentially.
3: Yeah, uh, we will get more to the Tonys in a second. I definitely, um, I definitely uh, gave out a little bit of a gay gasp uh, when when you when you did admit that that you weren't really familiar with his Tony uh, I know. performances. Um, but uh, we'll get to that in a little uh, in a little bit. Um, I think I think that Hugh and he was a because if you weren't familiar with his Tony's mm-hmm. work, it was an interesting choice. I mean, you know, a lot of times they'd take in either comedians like David Letterman or. Actors who were known as stand-ups first or were just really big into comedy. You had Whoopi Goldberg, you had Billy Crystal. You had that class of Hollywood star coming in and hosting. And Hugh Jackman wasn't known for that kind of stuff. He wasn't even really known for comedy at all. And so for him to come in and be asked to host uh, the biggest award show in movies, that was an unusual choice and it was an exciting choice. And I think it goes a little bit into what you were saying about the ratings and how they definitely were trying to get a lot of eyeballs and it was making up you know having Wolverine host your yeah. Oscars <laughs> makes up for the fact that you do have Frost Nixon and the reader and some lesser scene films be the some of the most nominated in the evening so you know it, it's a, it was a good balance mm-hmm. uh, and I think and I think perhaps a better answer than extending it uh, or trying to do that popular movie category that they tried to make happen for 10 minutes last year right although we saw we saw this year with no host. And, and I thought that did great, too. So I, you know, but I do think that getting your star power in other ways is the way to go versus trying to extend the categories as, as they've tried in the past.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I, I know it did kind of pay off in, in the end and that the ratings were up a little bit from the year prior. So so that is a success. But it, I, I do think it is a funny, I guess, asterisk to this that, yeah, I mean, Hugh Jackman, I guess could be seen as a random host, but he did have a film that year that (laughs) I don't think that many people saw called Australia, which does actually play into kind of his whole opening monologue. So we can get in that in a second too. But it is funny that they were like, okay, if we're going to pull someone who is relevant this year because they have a performance in a big movie, let's zero in on Hugh Jackman from Australia, the movie that I don't think many people could tell you a single thing about other than where it's set.
3: And it's really long because I did actually watch it. It's really long.
0: That's why I didn't even watch it. Because it was so long. (laughs) I feel really bad for having not. But but Hugh does mention that up front. Uh, I guess like, you know, the centerpiece of this whole hosting gig obviously is this opening number. Before that, we do get a minute or so of a more traditional monologue. And really, the only joke, the only beat of that monologue before we get into the number is where he's kind of just talking about, really, the versatility of actors. In The Reader,
2: Kate, who is English, plays a German, nominated. In Tropic Thunder, Robert Downey Jr., ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Robert, who's an American, played an Australian, playing an African-American, nominated. Whereas me,
0: I'm an Australian, who played an Australian in a movie called Australia hosting. So he was very in on that, which I think is kind of part of the charm uh, with Hugh in general. Just, I think, kind of always in on the joke, even when the joke is at his own expense, that sort of thing.
3: And, you know, Hugh... Jackman was not the only new element to to this Oscars behind the scenes. you had, as you mentioned Bill Condon and Lawrence Mark producing, but the writers that they had come in to to write this this part of the show were writers that had not had a lot of experience doing award show kind of stuff. They were out of the box ideas. You have Dan Harmon, Rob Schrabe, and Ben Schwartz um, yeah. who were very funny. And, and well-known writers now, but at the time had a mix of known names and, and unknown names. And really, they brought a new energy uh, to this that I thought was super exciting.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, this is the moment where I think we should shout out uh, what was the um, 2019 oral history that Vulture put together about this specific moment. Jackson McHenry with Vulture did this great oral history. So he had talked to the producers, he had talked to the writers just kind of about what it was like to bring this together at the 10-year anniversary. So got to give that a shout out because that kind of painted in a lot of the, you know, answered a lot of the questions I had about this as a longtime fan. But as is mentioned in that, the producers that were kind of putting this together, I I thought this was so interesting. They went out to Dan Harmon and Rob because they, one, were both fans of the Sarah Silverman program, which they worked on for Comedy Central, which I'm also a huge fan of. But then also because they wrote the film Monster House, the animated film Monster House, which is great. And I think that they just saw that these people could tackle, you know, these two seemingly different energies and do it so well that they thought, well, surely they can kind of bring those two energies together for the show. And that was kind of, I I guess, the the idea that they were going for. And, and of course, Ben Schwartz, as you mentioned, as we all know know now, is Sean Ralphio from Parks and Recreation, (laughs) who is, oh, I, (laughs) I mean, so, so funny. But I think at that point, like, I mean, certainly had some writing credits, I think, Robot Chicken. So, yeah, as you mentioned, it was kind of, it was this these fresh voices with an out-of-the-box idea, which essentially was to kind of... I think they used the term make Hugh a Boy Scout for the Oscars that year. Uh, as we talked about up top, there was this whole emphasis on not coming off as too elitist with the recession going on. So it was like, okay, let's let's say there isn't the budget for the opening number. The whole conceit was, well, there's not a budget, but it, Hugh Jackman's gonna do it himself. And so... That of course leads to any number of really, really, really funny bits um, that we can get into in more detail. Of course.
3: Well, let's just start off with the with the set. So you start with the Slumdog Millionaire section. Um, basically, you have Hugh Jackman doing musical odes to each of the big nominated films, mm-hmm. and the one that we see here first is, is kind of like a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire setup um, that he's supposed to have created uh, at home on his own. And, but what I love is that those writers actually, like, I were the ones hot glue. Like, I love that it's so homemade that they didn't, like, hire a set designer. They went authentic and were like, all right, what would this be like if we actually had to create this?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that that really starts to all click a few scenes of this number later. You know We get the milk bit and then we go into Batman, we go into the Dark Knight and he comes out on, I guess, (laughs) forgive me, I don't know the proper term, the bat cycle, we'll call it. And you're looking at it and you're like, okay, that is like maybe the lid of a barrel. There's a milk crate, there are milk cartons as as the handles. And I remember watching that for the first time and really being like how I need to pause this and rewatch each bit and like really look at the detail because it's, I mean, that's, that's where it all comes together for me is just seeing all the details, especially in the bat cycle there. It's amazing.
3: It's super fun, and the lyrics are super tongue-in-cheek.
2: Everyone went to see the Dark Knight What am I doing you think is not right Is not my cane my full approved tights Maybe if I age backwards
3: I think that they, they, you know, they struck just the right tone for the reverence with which you need to address things at the Oscars but also kind of bringing in this more I wouldn't even say youthful energy, but just uh, a little bit of irreverence too for sure um, which, for sure which was a nice which was a nice balance and i think you get to that perfectly um with the the reader section
2: the reader i haven't seen the reader i was going to see it later but i fell behind
0: my batman build took longer than i thought to design the reader
2: I
3: know I need to see the- it's it's actually something that is, is said in my household just randomly uh, all <laughs> the time although I will say there was there was a Mandela effect for me because in my head it was Billy Crystal that performed that
0: that's so funny I mean he is kind of putting on an affect in that moment because obviously the whole bit with this is that for for no reason at all it's like a techno themed part his dancers are in like metallic bodysuits. and so yeah he's got a little bit of a different affect there in his voice but I mean, obviously this, this is the centerpiece of of the opening number. Like it, it, this fully makes it. And I mean, you're, you're right. It is kind of tapping into this whole, well, irreverence certainly. And, and I think it's so interesting, like for it to be the reader specifically, like the reader, something that, no other way to put it, like the reader is just pure Oscar bait. And though it was lobbied as such. And it was like, let's finally get Kate Winslet that Oscar. But I don't like who who was really a fan of it. And especially now thinking about the themes of it. I mean, Kate Winslet was playing a Nazi. So um, but that aside, I mean, I think it's so fascinating that that's the one they kind of chose to like lampoon this way. Because as, as we read that oral history, uh, they're all kind of talking about you know, this part's more about making fun of Jackman and how he wasn't able to see everything. But I'm like, no, come on. Like, what other movie could they have pretended they didn't see? It's very specifically The Reader. And I think it's just because The Reader is very specifically that kind of movie that you only see because you're an Oscar completist. (laughs) That's my take, at least.
3: Well, also, the name is just so generic. It's like, yes. even if you didn't see Frost Nixon, you know what Fro- N- Frost Nixon is about. And thank God that Anne Hathaway saw Frost Nixon. Um, <laughs> because we get we get uh, Hugh Jackman pulling Anne seemingly randomly out of the audience. But uh soon you find out that clearly she's in on this as she as she, you know, starts singing along with him, uh pretending to be Nixon to Jackman's Frost, um, which I love that it turns into like a romance at one point, which it's like that's clearly, you know, we we have that story of like the Hollywood executive that wanted to do the Harriet Tubman movie with, with Julia Roberts back in the right. back in the nineties. Like it's kind of that kind of thing where you can imagine there's a Hollywood world in which the Frost Nixon <laughs> story was told. as a a love story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I definitely see that angle to it too, but it is just another one of those moments that's like, why is it becoming this? And it's just so absurd, and that's why it's it's so perfect in my mind. I did want to mention just a pin in the, I put a pin in the Anne Hathaway note, is that um, (laughs) uh, Lawrence Mark said in that same oral history, he talked about, he had talked about just like that they take full credit for making Les Mis happen because that was the first time we saw Hugh and Anne singing together so it was like ah the gears were turning in someone's head certainly. Well
3: I, I, I love that well there's there's two elements um, that that I loved of the behind the scenes kind of stuff that that you get from that oral history and one is that Hugh would go off and like they were unsure if he was choreographing it right. himself or working with a choreographer but that wasn't like a, a rehearsed thing that they hired a choreographer that came in and d- did it on the stage and that kind of stuff. Hugh just would like show up and have these dances ready to go, and that's why he was so <laughs> excited about that reader part, which I thought was cool. Um, but the other thing is how uh, Anne Hathaway's rep was basically just constantly being like, Anne sings, you know, Anne sings, and 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 sings like at all the pre-Oscars <laughs> events that people were at to the point that the 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 team that was writing and producing this felt that they uh, they they wanted to figure out a way to make that work. Just the like, persistence was the reason um, that Anne Hathaway ended up on that stage that night, which I thought was really cool. Um, <laughs> pivoting really quick to Hugh Jackman as Tony's host. Uh, I, I love that he calls out to Sarah Jessica Parker in the audience here.
2: I'm only here so I can phone
0: a friend. Hi, Sarah Jessica.
3: Cameron, once you actually watch his Tony performances from the 2004 Tonys, which was the year he hosted for the second time, um, but was also nominated for The Boy From Oz. In that, he actually pulls up Sarah just like a Parker out of the audience. Um, and oh. that one seems a little bit more as though she wasn't expecting it because she's not asked to sing or do anything else like that. He just has her, like, in, like, dance alongside, like, gyrate her hips like he does. And it seems like that's an element I have not seen the boy from Oz. I wish I had because he's fantastic in the little bit that you see as part of his Tony's performance. But it seems like something that was part of his show, maybe where he gets someone from the audience mm-hmm. every night to stand up and kind of just dance with him.
1: There's a few nervous people in the front row all of a sudden.
2: (laughs) Oh, I feel like a little sex in the city. Hello, Sarah
1: Jessica.
3: And so I I can just imagine that when he says her name at the beginning of the song and dance number that Sarah Jessica
0: Parker's heart must have skipped a bit just a little bit that she was going to be pulled up on there. Gripping onto the sides of her seats, of course. Exactly. Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, so uh, I loved that. That was a tiny little bit of a callback that he that he like says hi to her in the audience, um, which was really really nice. Um, but that was actually just part of his actual performance because The Boy from Oz was nominated. Mm-hmm. That oh, his opening number, Cam, you have to go watch eventually for that 2004 Tonys was so incredible. He brings out the three women that play the washing machine in Carolina Change, the three women that played the street urchins from the Little Shop of Horrors, and the three women that play the dynamites in Hairspray. And to start it off, he does like a one-night-only kind of thing from Dreamgirls, which we've referenced <laughs> now twice here. Mm-hmm. And it just grows and grows and grows until they have representatives of, of a ton of the shows that are on Broadway at the time, which was an insane period for, for Broadway. Cause you had Wicked and Avenue right. Q and Hairspray and all these, uh, Billy Elliot gets a moment in that. So you have to go watch that. That's incredible. But he's hosted that show. He hosted it three times in a row. And then he hosted it again, um, just a few years ago. He's been nominated for Emmys because of that and won an Emmy, uh, for, I believe that 2004, Performance. So Hugh Jackman is just a showman, uh, which we'll get to that word in a second. (laughs) But uh, here, what I also, as a musical theater fan, what I loved is it's very clear to you the instant that he gets to the wrestler. Section, um, mm-hmm. uh, the wrestler being one of the other films nominated that year. It's very clear that it's. Uh, I, in fact, I didn't even think that it was not it. I thought they just took the melody of this in the this is the moment from Jekyll and Hyde, the 1990 musical that's based on jekyll and hyde and that they just took frank wildhorn's song and rewrote the words to it and it's actually made me go back and re-watch the other performances to be like wait are they all parodies of musical theater numbers and i was like no they aren't I come to read this vulture oral history and uh they it was just a song that they had heard randomly at a hotel bar that they thought the tone and and themes fit for for this moment in the production uh, and they had wanted it to be close but not exactly it but ended up getting too close to it that uh, that the team behind Jekyll and Hyde actually said, hey, that's definitely our song luckily they didn't sue them uh, instead they just said like, hey, can you add our name to the credits of, of this which I think was really cool of them
2: I melt my button I ironed all my men and frosted my nixon because i am hugh jackman and i've waited so long and no recession can stop my confession oh, silence
0: my- i love that detail and it just again speaks to i mean there's so many elements of this that just feel like they like just barely came together and it feels you know it, it kind of is thematically in line with the, the whole performance it's just so so funny to hear that they just randomly overheard that song. Obviously, it does work so well here. And it, it lets Hugh belt out that final note. It's just so random. Well, what why not shout that at the end there? But man, you mentioned, you mentioned Emmys, you mentioned Hugh's Emmy wins earlier. Well, All the writers won an Emmy for this, which is just, you know, the nice cherry on top of making one of the the best opening numbers of all time, I would say, but...
3: And we And we apparently could either thank them or chastise them for giving us the greatest showman. So depending on how you feel about that <laughs> that movie, um this apparently started the conversations about like how great it would be to see Hugh Jackman playing PT Barnum. And uh, that transformed from the idea on set with Lawrence Mark the producer saying like, this would be a great idea to the script getting put together to Bill Condon working on the script to to it kind of getting fine-tuned. And then years later, we end up with, this is the greatest show.
0: I mean, that is just the funniest detail of all of it. Because of course, how could you not be watching this and just be in total awe of Hugh Jackman? And I think like, you know, how old was I at the time? I, this was over 10 years ago now, but I, I, I largely knew him as Wolverine. And I just remember sitting there jaw on the floor, like, this man needs to be in in the pictures. Obviously, he's in giant (laughs) movies, but like, you know, I'm just thinking like old classic, big timey movie musical thing. I was like, we gotta make a role for him. And sure enough, he got one and I didn't love (laughs) The Greatest Showman, but it does still stand that Hugh is The Greatest Showman.
3: (laughs) My take on it is the the music is enjoyable. The movie makes no sense at all. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, you know, Les Mis, I have my thoughts on too. But that's not what this is about. This is about celebrating Hugh Jackman <laughs> and um, and the great work that he did as a, as a host of award shows. Uh, Cam, I really appreciate you coming and presenting this as an idea that we should talk about. If only because it let me talk about the Tony Awards uh, as well. Um, and I'm I'm gonna hound you until I've known that I know that you've watched all of uh, his Tony performances. I've got a few Neil Patrick Harris moments that you mm. need to see I, I will also shout out uh just the pure stamina this man has of course he's singing and dancing and running all over the stage doing this performance at the 2009 oscars but if you look at one of his tony performances he literally at the 2005 so this is the year after the the moments that i discussed earlier for three and a half minutes he literally just hops um yeah from I outside i that all the way down the, the aisles through backstage. He's hot. I, like, I, that would make me exhausted. And then he wraps that all up with singing and and like presenting these like huge belting notes at the end. Like, it's just insane what this man can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to come to this podcast walking away with homework, but I've got a lot of Tony's clips to watch. And my, my homework to you and to all the listeners is to revisit the clip from later in the same 2009 ceremony where Jackman is joined by Beyonce for a musical medley. And then they're later joined by Zac Efron, Vanessa Hudgens, Amanda Seyfried, and Dominic Cooper, because that is a wild moment in history. (laughs) So give that a rewatch. And you know what? While you're at it, also, um, if you haven't, check out Bad Education on HBO, (laughs) because Hugh is incredible in that. incredible
3: yes Uh, we certainly there's a lot of fans of bad education at the av club so anyone who has listened to all our episodes will be familiar with that from our emmys pre-emmys chat Uh, definitely check that out and definitely check out all those clips cam i can't wait to further exchange (laughs) uh change youtube videos with you so that'll be coming uh but i appreciate you joining us um you can check out all the videos that we discussed of the performances at avclub.com but don't go opening your browser just yet because we are not done. Next up, I am joined by our editorial coordinator, Gwen Einat, who recently got the chance to chat with Paul Reiser. Uh, thanks for being here, Gwen.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah,
3: uh, we get to have your debut on Push the Envelope, although we did, uh, long-time listeners, long, long, long-time listeners for the couple months that we've been going, will have heard your discussion with Catherine O'Hara. So uh, so your voice at least will be a little familiar, mm-hmm. but we're glad to have you in person here.
1: Well, thanks again. It's been um, It's been really fun to do the podcast.
3: So you got the chance to do 11 Questions with Paul Reiser, which is a franchise that we do on the site often. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar, why don't you give us kind of the, the real short uh, explanation of 11 Questions?
1: Uh, 11 Questions is a regular feature that we do. We actually compile the questions from our devoted listeners, and they're extremely random. For example, this year, I think question number one is, if you could create a candle, what would the scent be like? There's also a question about who would you call if you needed help burying a body Uh, so they you know there's no real rhyme or reason to them but I think that kind of helps make it fun especially I have found with people who are like in the middle of a press junket and you know I remember talking to Zachary Levi when he was in the middle of doing Shazam and he was just so happy to talk about like anything else so 11 questions just kind of gives a chance to show a different side of celebrities that you've known for a while
3: yeah, which is fantastic. And of course, Paul is, uh, Paul, we're best friends now, Mr. <laughs> Riser, um Mr. Riser is doing press for There's Johnny, uh, which is on Peacock now.
1: Yeah, it's, I'm so impressed with him. Like his career, you know, everybody knows him from Mad About You. And that kind of came back and kind of didn't do that well. But he's been like, but it was great... on
3: Spectrum, which, like, right. th- like I would have loved to have watched it, but I don't have Spectrum and I'm not going to seek it out because you need a whole different cable company. Like, it's not even like you can pay for the service.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I love him, but you didn't miss much. Like, it was, <laughs> it was an ill-fated, uh, one of those ill-fated reboots, but... He has carved out such a great career right now as like kind of a character actor, which I'm loving. Like he showed up on Stranger Things. He's this uh, big shot on Red Oaks. I think he was in the sitcom Married. I just I love seeing him around. I think he's just really stretching his wings, but he's still doing stuff behind the scenes as well. So there's Johnny. He's not in front of the camera. This is something he created uh, with one of his writers from Mad About You about in 1972 behind the scenes of the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And what I think is really interesting about it is they like, because at the time I'm like, well, who's going to play Johnny and Ed McMahon, right? But they're like, somehow they seamlessly mix the archive footage with the new show. It's kind of incredible how they do it. And it's obviously somebody who really loves like Paul Reiser as a stand-up was on the Tonight Show a lot. So he has a lot of affection for the material. It was on Hulu, there's Johnny and then got dropped off of Hulu it was actually like produced a couple years ago um, but Peacock since that's like the Tonight shows network has now picked it up and it just started streaming on Peacock this week
3: well definitely check it out I've gotten to see a little bit of it as well and it's super fun um, I love that but let's let's, uh, let's not delay and, and get to get to Paul Reiser's 11 questions uh, let's take a listen Gwen
1: sounds great we've spoken before I don't know me. I don't know if I've been that lucky, but probably with somebody else. Not, not you,
2: but uh, uh, no, yes, I was against that. They offered you, and I, oh, <laughs> I said, who else do you have? And I said, anybody would do.
1: We have a feature called 11 Questions. All right. And the first question is, if you could create a candle, what would it smell like?
2: If I could create a candle, it would smell like wax, <laughs> I guess. It, was, go, it smells like candles. Yeah. You know what I think would be a great candle? Burnt onions. Really? You won't get to anybody's kitchen. Yeah. It smells like frying onions. You go, what's that? And it's on its way to being something. It's so I thought there should be a spray. That <laughs> it just smells like somebody's <laughs> cooking onions somewhere.
1: And then you I could it go-
2: as a candle. It's not romantic, but it could be a big seller.
1: Yeah, and like if we could fool people that you were actually kind of a chef. Exactly. Even though you had, like...
2: Exactly. well, What what do you got cooking? Don't go in there. It's a secret.
1: Right. And you really... It's just taking... It's it. a candle. Oh. Exactly. Perfect. The um, onion candle. <laughs> um, what was your favorite album in high school? My favorite album in high
2: school, and sadly probably still, <laughs> was the uh, Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore.
1: Oh.
2: I have an answer for that one. It's not funny, but it's, <laughs> it's factual. Wow.
1: Um, I'm yeah. trying to remember, like, would that be... I'm not a huge Almond Brothers fan, but what about it appealed to you?
2: It was just very alive. It was a live album, and it was just really pure blues rock. Uh, it was the first band that I ever heard of that had two drummers, that had this great percussion sound and great guitar playing, and, and it was blues, which I loved as a kid, which is probably odd. Um, but they took blues and turned, you know, and turned it into rock, and it was just. The musicianship, and it was just uh, a great album. Still is. Go listen to it. That's you great. don't have to know about it. In fact, I don't know that I listened to much Allman Brothers after that. That's how far I have come in fifty years.
1: Yeah. Well, and live albums meant more back then because it wasn't like you could pull up the YouTube or whatever. Right. And you probably weren't going to get to see them, you know, for a few That's years. True. So yeah. at least you could try to live the concert.
2: And it was also, I was kind of felt connected to because it, it was live at the Fillmore which was in New York, which was in my neighborhood. So yeah. I felt like, oh, I know where they recorded that. I know where they
1: were.
2: Oh, nice. So it felt sort of like a hometown thing.
1: Awesome. Um, what conspiracy theory do you think is the most plausible?
2: Uh, these answers are going to be very small, right? You're going to just
1: get four it's, words. It's fine. I'm giving you
2: such talkative long answers. What conspiracy might be true? I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I entertain a lot of conspiracy theories.
1: No aliens, uh, prop circles, Kennedy assassination. I believe she Kennedy uh,
2: was assassinated. I do believe that. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what might be true. Uh, I don't know. I have nothing on that one. Sorry. That's
1: fine. You're a very trusting
2: person. What? Give me another one. Okay. What's a the... ten questions?
1: What's the first time you were disillusioned by politics?
2: Oh. <laughs> oh, I remember, <laughs> okay, this is really young. I haven't thought about this ever. I can't believe it's just When I was maybe seven, and there was a guy running, or he was the senator in New York, and he was running for re-election, I think, mean, Keating. Mm-hmm. I don't know his first name, Senator Keating. And it was like, he was in the neighborhood, and he was shaking hands, and I shook his hand. And that was the first celebrity and I ever, you know, famous person I ever met. And I remember saying, I, you know, I said, I'm never going to wash my hands. I just shook the like, kidney, man. And my, I remember my parents went, it's not that big a deal. I went, oh, all right. And then I washed my hands. So <laughs> finding out that shaking hands with a senator was not um, all <laughs> it was cracked up to be, that was, that was <laughs> dispiriting.
1: Sounds like. It was what? my
2: first accomplishment that it was taken from me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what's was a big deal. Assholes. <laughs> who would you call if you needed help burying a body?
2: <laughs> um, who would I call if I need... I, I, we have a, a guy who does uh, like gardening. We have a very good communication, though we don't share a common language. But I've seen him kill snakes and kill a lot of things that need killing, <laughs> and he doesn't seem upset by it. <laughs> so I would say... It would probably be Francisco. <laughs> uh,
1: he's
2: gonna read this, maybe. <laughs> and go, Wow, look at that. I made the
1: paper. Most people are like go their ahead. dad. But no, this guy sounds actually handy. So No, he's
2: well he got a, he's already he got his own shovel. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. He Thanks. seems morally flexible and has his own shovel, which is all you want out of a guy who wants to help you bury it.
1: Absolutely. Go ahead. What's the favorite? your favorite Halloween costume you've ever worn? The time limit oh, question? There was only
2: one, and it was the last one I wore. Hmm. It was Superman. Hmm. Uh huh. And I was, I'm going to get seven, I guess, seven or eight. And I was uh, chased and beaten.
1: Oh,
2: <laughs> we Manhattan. We do We would. We, we would just do it in our building. But there was plenty. There was like I don't know, ten apartments on a floor, or twelve mm-hmm. floor. So that's a plenty to do. And then some kids, uh, bigger kids, were chasing us. And I go, but uh, Superman, I, I shouldn't have to be running. <laughs> but I remember that was another disillusionment. I went, yeah, I don't think the Superman uh, outfit is fooling anybody because i I'm, I'm running. I'm being threatened.
1: Mm-mm. Um, if proximity to your industry was a moot point, where would you most like to live and why?
2: Hold on, I've got to decipher. If proximity to my industry, that's already a big phrase. Sorry. Where would I want to live? I love the Hudson Valley in New York. I mm. just find every time I drive, that part of the country it feels very satisfying to me. If I had to go anywhere, I'd probably go somewhere more exotic. Mm-hmm. Like maybe Paris, mm-hmm. or but I like or Ireland. I like a coastal, I like a river, I like a green, and I like a little chili. Ooh. So if it's not coastal Ireland, closest and probably better food would be Hudson Valley, New York.
1: Nice. How did you learn about the birds and the bees?
2: Ironically, I only learned about the bees. The birds never made it uh, into the conversation, so to this day... I feel like I'm sort of uh, half prepared. <laughs> I could have said half cocked, but that would be just foul. <laughs> no, it'd just be wrong and, and suggestive and foul.
1: Not like in the schoolyard or dad's playboy or Catholic school. Well, you no,
2: know, I you know I don't remember any information actually coming in.
1: <laughs> it's sort of
2: like it's sort of like how we are all learned how to you know go online. It's like nobody ever really taught us. It's just one day you realize. I guess I just googled something. Somebody showed me. I guess because I'm googling,
1: right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's Kind of intuitive.
2: And and by the way, in both areas, there are huge holes in my knowledge. <laughs> and I and I feel like I go. Nobody ever really. Well, I know only the very first. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about technical. I I really only learned the barest bones. And I'll have. I remember I had my my iPhone for like five years, and I forgot what it was. But somebody says, you know, you can just click here and it's, I, and take. It. You can take a screenshot. of it. You what? You can take a screenshot. Well, nobody told me that. Did I didn't? Uh, I didn't have. Uh, you know, really, uh, nobody ever told me anything. Yep. So now I sit alone, and and the fields have merged. I sit alone, naked, with my iPhone, and I just, you know, do the first two or three tricks that I know.
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's fair.
2: Sorry, you had to hear that. Give <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, um, me another one. Make what- it good. Uh, sorry, this one's kind of tricky. These are your me.
2: questions. These are reader questions.
1: Yeah, I did not make these up. Um, these are reader
2: questions for me or just for everybody?
1: For everybody. Everybody gets the same. Um, okay. I, the last person I ran through this with was Al Roker.
2: Just Yo, a, funny. I,
1: He was fun. Um Good. As are you. What? Uh, what's the pettiest hill you're willing to die on? Like the thing you, like Al Roker has a stationary cabinet. Like he only writes with calligraphy pens.
2: Say that again, is what? Because you you fade it
1: out. Um, Say that again. Al Roker like only writes with like fountain pens. Really? Yeah, he has a whole stationary cabinet. It was completely fascinating to me. Really? No, it's so nice, and like so he makes his kids write thank you notes and stuff. Like that's a really good thing. But, like if you, I love
2: that. Or like if I you love that if he only writes in a fountain all, thank you notes is a great thing. Yeah. Um,
1: but like if you only use cloth napkins or you. Only watch TV when it first comes out, or you never reread a book, or just what, oh, what's a, like something think. like that that you cling to. Yeah,
2: I maintain. Well, I I just won't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't. It doesn't come up that often. I, you know, I think it came out when I, I last year earlier. Uh, yeah, last December, Helen and I uh, went on Jimmy Fallon, mm-hmm. and this was the first time this was revealed. I didn't mean for it to be public. But he said, what are you doing for Christmas? And Helen says, oh, I'm going to go online and watch the new Star Wars movie. Was it Star Wars? Star- yeah, sorry. Star and And he said, what about you? And I said, here's the truth. I've never seen one. And the audience gasped as if I had just said I strangled a puppy. <laughs> I said, you know, I, I, I've seen pieces. I know what they look like. I've probably, you know, seen no. I just, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And we go, but this is so, I go, yeah, I understand. I'm not, I'm not you know, degrading it. they're clearly very good but yeah I I just I'm gonna I'm gonna skip it
1: that is so funny because that is me because at work it was like a big deal and everybody was watching it and I was trying to watch it and my husband's like this is not the show for you it's got incest it's got violence it's got and I'm like (laughs) And I'm like, what are you saying about all those people who like Game of Thrones? Like, a lot of people like they it. I like, like that. I don't sure. think they're all into incest. You know, incest violence right? In yeah. Moment. But then, of course, I watched like one episode, and some guy's spinal cord got ripped out. I'm like, yeah, you're right. No, this is not for me. No, I hear, yeah, I hear I, it. I, I, I
2: actually, I'm, I'm, I've gotten more. Maybe from having kids, but, or, or or old age, whatever. But I literally shield my eyes now. If I go, oh, I don't want to watch, you know, like, I was watching Creed 2, and I, like, kept shielding when it got punched. and went, it's a boxing movie. It's going to be punching. I go, but yeah, I just don't want to see. I got just, I, 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 I don't know, I'm too sensitive. <laughs> or I'm, I, uh, or I'm, I'm relating to it. I go, oh, that's going kind to of hurt. Uh, maybe I'm such a good audience member that it hurts me.
1: Or everything's just really more brutal nowadays, too, I think. They just yes, make it more I'm
2: a right? uh, gentle, gentle, weak little man.
1: Like, um, well kind of on the opposite of that, what pop culture or art do you turn to like when you've had a bad day? Like you're anti Game of Thrones, I guess.
2: When I've had a bad day, uh what cult, uh, I will probably I will go well, it's not really a bad day. I will always end up at the piano at some day. Oh. At the end at some point in the day, and I will sit down and play and close the door so I'm not bothering anybody. Yeah, and I never really play with anybody else in the room. So that's, that's always been my go-to.
1: What do, you, what do you like to play? I'm picturing you as a I,
2: I, I, well, I play classical, but uh, some days I'll just sit down and I'll start writing something, or I'll, I'll be playing you know, some Billy Joel or something that, because mm-hmm. it sounds good on piano. Uh, or sometimes I'm just uh, improvising, but it's, it's, just, it's just the sound, the sound of, of uh, an actual piano. And the acoustics are somehow are very healing and uh, calming to
1: me. So, was that actually John Lennon's piano in that Mad About You episode?
2: No, it was not. That was fabricated. Ah. Uh, it was not. But it actually was John's wife. Right, Yoko, you. the show. Uh, that actually was Yoko. Um, but no, we had faith in that.
1: I guess that would be a lot of moving around. Yes,
2: and then you wouldn't want to break it because it's probably worth it. A gazillion dollars.
1: Sure. Um, okay, we flew through these. This is question 11. Okay. You, you killed it. Yes. If you could find out the day you're going to die, would you? Uh,
2: probably not. The only reason I would is like if I had to cancel a subscription. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I go, wait a second. The bill came on Wednesday. I was already dead Tuesday, so I'm not paying for that. So I'd want to take care of that front to make less of a burden for my family. Like I, you know what, yes, that, that iTunes say. we have to stop that.
1: <laughs> very, very thoughtful. Um, <laughs> okay, um, well, the last person we asked these questions. When you
2: asked me that, you don't have any insight, right? You don't know when, uh, any, any information on that, do you?
1: Sadly, no. No, okay, we're not, not that kind of organization. Keep the um, mystery. Exactly. So here's the thing. So you're going to get to come up with a question that we asked the next person. Um, so the last person we asked these questions was Tom Green. Yeah. Tom Green wanted to know, why did you do this interview? Why did you agree to answer these questions for us?
2: Uh, just for the mercenary. Is that the right word, mercenary? Uh, just so that you would say, hey, everybody, watch, there's Johnny. Okay. That's the price I'm willing to pay. I would give a half an hour of my life mm-hmm. of this, talking to a very nice young woman just so that hopefully the 14 people who who are aware of, of this would say, "Oh, I'll check out this Johnny."
1: Yeah, perfect. I think that's probably why everybody does it. But we're grateful. Uh,
2: that's all I have. I'm being
1: quite honest. No, why, we're so grateful else for else the time. Why else would you do it? <laughs> okay. And then, so you, I don't know who our next interviewee is, but what is a question you would like to throw out there in the world for the next person? Could be anything in, at all.
2: What do you? What? What do we call the things on your mirror after you floss? Yes. Let me know if something
1: comes up good. Wow. This was so delightful. It's everything I wanted and more. Thank you so you much. You were
2: everything I wanted. And I'm sorry about the conspiracy question. I failed you.
3: He just seems like such a, a, a fun guy to get to chat with. Uh, he, he actually had fun with it. You know, you never know what you're going to get when you walk into these 11 Questions interviews.
1: Oh, I know. I have done a lot of these, let's just say, over the past several years. Uh, This is definitely in, like, one of my top five favorite interviews I've ever done. Because I, you know, at the beginning of the interview, I'm talking to him about, like, I was such a fan of Diner. Diner was, like, my movie. So I was thrilled to get to talk to him anyway. And then just to have him be, like, so on board you know, my husband was kind of walking in and out as I was recording these and he's like chuckling. He's like, I forgot he was that funny. I'm like, yeah, he started as a stand up comic. He's super funny, but just was very warm and affectionate and really like, you know, gave some serious thought to the who would have you help bury a body question. You know, you got to appreciate somebody who goes all in on it. So he was, he was definitely a delight. I told him, I'm like, this was everything I wanted out of this conversation, which, you know, doesn't happen all the time with interviews, but it did with this one.
3: Well, I'm glad that you were able to share it with us and that everyone gets to hear it now on on Push the Envelope. Uh, We hope that this was entertaining for you as it was for us to listen to. And if you were a fan, please continue to join us every Thursday as we bring you a new episode. Gwen, thank you so much for joining us for this one. We'll definitely have to have you back to talk about some uh, of your favorite award show moments as well. But anytime you want to share an interview, we are happy to share it with the listeners. Oh, thanks
1: so much for having me. This was really fun.
3: Of course, of course. As I mentioned, you can join us again next week with an all new episode. Please remember to subscribe and rate and comment, which for some reason is the most important to the Apple uh, and spotify overlords um let them know that you are listening and what you like about this Uh, definitely hit us up on social media and avclub.com and let us know the type of things that you would love to hear us discussing in terms of award shows or if there's any particular interview subjects that you want to hear from we want to hear from you all so definitely hit us up uh, and until next week bye This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.